Well, hello. Yes, it's Phil Ryan again here at the Story Hive. And yes, it's another of our podcasts. You can hear the kind of exhaustion in my voice because I've got to do lots of this stuff. But I have to tell you, it's really good fun. And I kind of love the idea that as I'm talking to you, a complete stranger, I'm going to entertain you, baffle you, frighten you, freak you out, or even make you shed a tear. So, as you know, there's a couple of stories coming your way. So I'm going to kick off with the first one. Now, this one is called The Inquiry, and I think you're going to love exactly where it takes you. Anyway, happy listening. Dear Sir, thank you for your inquiry regarding the P67Q permit. I've attached a link below. Your sincerely, Alan Briggs, Permit Department. Dear Mr Briggs, thanks for the link. I've now printed out the forms. However, I need to ask, does the P67Q permit work in conjunction with the D140T? Best regards, Jim Davis. Dear Sir, that's a very good question. No one's ever asked me that, but I can see it's not covered on our website. The answer is actually yes, but only if accompanied by an online G568 sheet. I'm sorry it wasn't made clearer. Yours sincerely, Alan Briggs, Permit Department. Dear Alan, thanks for clearing that up. Of course it's not your fault. I'm guessing someone else in the purchasing section created that issue. To be honest, I need an extra coffee this morning to try and figure it out. Once again, thanks for being so efficient. It's really appreciated. Best regards, Jim. Dear Jim, that's very kind of you to say. Our department does try its best, and I'm like you. <laughs> Without my morning coffee, I can't do anything. Yours sincerely, Alan. Dear Alan, I've submitted the PH67Q and the 0140T, but the third section on only online is a little vague. Should it be single or double? considering the P67Q. Oh, if you like coffee, by the way, there's a great place not far from your office, I noted. It's called Carlo's Coffee Bar. Fantastic, authentic Italian coffee. Perhaps you've heard of it. Best regards, Jim. Hi, Jim. Uh, yeah, you need to put double in box 14. Actually, I've seen Carlo's now you mention it, but I prefer an amazing coffee truck called Colombian Real that's to be found near the office in the precinct. It only arrived last week, but their prices are half the others and their coffee's amazing. Yours, Alan. Dear Alan, great stuff. I've now put double, but it's still asking for a code and I can't proceed without it. Any ideas? To be honest, it's been 20 minutes. It's getting to be like a pub quiz. Thanks for your help in the advance. Oh, and thanks for the coffee tip. Best regards, Jim. Dear Jim, I'm really sorry about that, mate. Yeah, it's a strange fault, but I'm assured it's been fixed. Just put four zeros and you should be able to proceed. And I can see your point. Yeah, it's really a bit like a pub quiz trying to guess. Ha, well, more coffee, I think. Yours, Alan. Dear Alan, I'm really worrying I'm beginning to be a pain, but the four or zeros work, but it needs a 50H confirmation. Oh, by the way, funnily enough, I'm in a pub quiz team. So you think I could work all this out? <laughs> Extra coffee needed, I reckon. Best regards, Jim. Dear Jim, not at all. You're not bothering me. It's my job, Jim. I'm really sorry the system is a bit complex. It's not you. Type 50H clear, then five zeros. That, that should do it. This might surprise you, mate, but I'm in a pub quiz team too. The Green Dragon by Pemberley. You know, drinking my Colombian Reel now just to get me through the morning. <laughs> Yours, Alan. Dear Alan, brilliant, it's all worked. I'm assuming I just need that F40 edition that you got. But talk about coincidences a minute. We played the Green Dragon team last month. You beat us with that brilliant guy and all that stuff about chemicals. I play for the Red Lion in Barton Fields. <laughs> Looking at the clock now, mate, my coffee cup is calling. <laughs> Best regards, Jim. 
Dear Jim, yeah, glad it's nearly sorted. That F40 thing, yeah, it should complete the phase. Now, this is going to shock you, but I'm the guy that beat your guy. Colin, wasn't it? He was brilliant, though. What he didn't know about fish, you could write at the back of a stamp. I think he said he had an aquarium shop. Really close, though, wasn't it? I don't like to brag, but I'm pretty good at chemistry. You know, I studied for it at uni before I came here. I love these random coincidences, don't you? Time for coffee, mate. Yours, Alan. Dear Jim, sorry again for the lateness of my last reply, but I've been off these past days with a bit of a dicky tummy. Too much coffee, probably. Happily, I'm fine now. Oh, I hope the F430 edition worked out. Yours, Alan. Dear Alan, you're a complete star. Yeah, it all whizzed through. I just need the purchase people to, you know, obey that last section and then I'm done. I'm sorry to hear you've been unwell, mate. You better take it easy. Maybe dial back on the coffee, yeah? <laughs> Best regards, Jim. Dear Jim, that's very kind. I feel much better as it goes. And to be honest, yeah, purchasing, they'll need to do any ID stuff, but you knew that. Now, I'm not sure I could live without my coffee, and I remembered that winning answer. Remember on the pub quiz? It was Barium, which, to be honest, was a complete guess. Good night, though, wasn't it? Yours, Alan. Dear Alan, I think you're being a bit modest, mate. You really know your stuff. Yeah, that was a good quiz, wasn't it? Your team are great. Sadly, I just had to leave early as I had a work call. I hope you're perking up a bit. <laughs> perking up, bit of a coffee joke there. Best regards, Jim. Dear Jim, again, very sorry for the lateness of my reply, but I've been off again these past days with this dicky tummy. What a drag. Just remember, your team's very good. Don't forget that. And don't forget your mate Colin is a blooming genius. I wish he was on our team. Cool. Blast this stomach. Too much coffee. Probably stick to the water, eh? <laughs> Yours, Alan. Dear Alan, sorry about your tummy issues. I wish you were on our team, mate. Talking to Colin, did you meet his sister Jennifer? Tall girl, light brown hair. Rather drunk, I understand. Best regards, Jim. Dear Jim, <laughs> that's very kind of you to say. I'd love to be on your team, but no, I don't remember Jennifer. Why'd you ask? Yours, Alan. Dear Alan, oh... Oh dear, your memory must be playing tricks, mate. Jennifer was the rather drunken girl you found outside the car park, Alan. Don't you remember? She remembers you. She pointed you out to me. Come on, Alan, think again. Jennifer, the girl you raped in the garden area. Suddenly the CCTV wasn't working. The police said she was so drunk she was probably complicit. What a lovely phrase, eh? Complicit. Like a pub quiz answer. Just because she's had too many, it was somehow her fault she got raped. So not pursuing the case. Perhaps you need another coffee to jog your memory? Or maybe not. As the ones you've been getting from Colombian Real, which is, by the way, my coffee truck, we've been lacing it with a poison from the Japanese puffer fish. Remember our Colin? He knows a lot about fish, like you said. He's my brother. Jennifer's my sister, by the way. And she's a computer whiz, so this entire email thread will blank itself three minutes after you open this one. I just sold you your last coffee, and I watched you drink some before you went in the building. And if Colin's right, by the time you've read this today, you'll be dead in the next four minutes. And as I understand, it's really painful. Yeah, painful, right? Like knives twisting around in you. And the poison's utterly untraceable. Hm. Clever, eh? Thanks for the help with the permits, by the way. Best regards, Jim. Dear Mr Davis, in answer to your very kind and thoughtful inquiry about my colleague Alan Briggs... I'm very sorry to tell you he unexpectedly passed away and I'll be handling all the permit inquiries from now. So, how can I be of assistance? Yours faithfully, Stephen Henderson, Permits Department. 
Now, I bet you didn't see that coming, did you? I thought that was a really neat ending, but uh, maybe that's just me. So onwards to the second story. Now, it's a charming tale. It's a lovely tale. It's called The Harpist, but I will give you a warning. There's some rather fruity language in it, and it's not too terrible, too offensive, but it's kind of necessary for the story. So off we go. It's The Harpist. It was nearly the end of tea time, and Nurse Phillips came over, and she waited until he finished his last piece, and then she let the small applause ripple away, and then tapped him gently on the shoulder. Albert, love, she said. I've saved you some Victoria sponge and some ham sandwiches, all right? I'll put them on your usual table, yeah? And she pointed to beside the French windows, roses almost bursting inside from the large hanging trellis. And he smiled and sat back. <sighs> and he let go of his harp, a beautiful thing, long golden columns, fine silverwork, his pride and joy. The same instrument that had carried him through his entire working life, five orchestras, countless recordings and recitals and now here he was sat in a corner of the lounge he liked it in Haverwell retired musicians home he paid for it with his house sale and his musicians union subs it was a lovely place last year he'd celebrated his 85th birthday <laughs> he couldn't believe it of course there'd been a party and cake and singing and playing it had just been splendid but all slightly tinged with sadness, however, his beloved Sydney not there, losing him some five years earlier. What a lovely man. He'd been a wonderful bassoon player. They met in Boots one frosty day in 1973. Sydney, the love of his life. They toured the world together, played on the same stages for years. Sydney, an absolute superb musician, plus a wonderful partner. They'd lived together right until the end. Albert smiled and then groaned as he rose from his padded stool, the lure of the Victoria sponge too much to resist. That afternoon the place was in uproar, everyone so excited. It was an annual institution, the fundraising concert, the home director himself, Sir Philip Godley, arriving very soon from London. And there in his room, Albert looked at his reflection in the mirror. His dinner jacket, a little tight, uncomfortably tight in fact. His playing movement rather restricted, despite Vera kindly letting it out. Again, he thought gloomily. It was the cake, he felt. He just simply couldn't resist it. Well, who could? A pot of Earl Grey, a piece of Victorian sponge, the closest things to ecstasy he'd felt in years. Locally, it was an institution, and the Haverwell retired musician's home had close links to the nearby music college, all the youngsters so fresh and bright and lovely, many of them in awe of the residents, so many that they'd listened to, mainly recordings, however, most of them not even being born when many of the residents were in their prime and in the middle of their music careers, Albert being one such player. It was just charming, he thought. It brought life and electricity to the old place and he sat and began tying his black tie, his white starched collar gleaming. Not bad, he thought, not bad. And he chuckled to himself at how many times he'd had to do this in his life. The endless dressing rooms, the corridors, the backs of tour buses. <laughs> A lifetime or two, really, he felt. Still, he wouldn't have changed it for the world. Music, the stuff of life. 
From a very early age, he knew he'd been lucky. The scholarship, the Royal Academy, the orchestral place offers, the life he'd had. And then his Sydney, the life they'd had. And throughout it all, his beloved harp. His hands admittedly a bit slower. He never attempted the really tricky pieces. Not now, not anymore. There was no use upsetting himself, he thought. But he got by. His repertoire still very strong, he felt. The day had started wonderfully. First the meet and greet, the young students and the elderly players, as Nurse Phillips slightly clumsily put it, all meeting in the main lounge. A buffet served, the room buzzing and humming, with good-natured laughter and storytelling. Albert there, holding forth to two slightly goggle-eyed young harpists about the time he'd thrown a manuscript at von Koran in Berlin, one of his favourite anecdotes. He looked around. The fundraiser was going swimmingly, he felt. The raffle won highlight, the concert the second, and generous donations were pouring in, the future of the home well assured, thanks to the many bequests it received. Albert yawned and helped himself to a third slice of Victoria's sponge. It was just perfect. The sponge light, the cream rich and heavy, and the tartness of the fresh raspberry jam. A joy to the taste buds, Bobby in the kitchen, an absolute master cake maker. He continued to eat, now sipping his tea and listening graciously to compliments, until the performance gong crashed from the main hallway. It was time to play. Soon the gala concert had begun, and this was the absolute highlight of the annual fundraiser, and Albert smilingly acknowledged his fellow players, so much less formal than normal concert halls, Nicer in a way, he thought. The long hours of his recent practice now about to bear fruition. There was Sylvie on cello, Margaret on viola, Diane on violin, Bertrand on piano today. Poor Charles hemorrhoids were playing up something terrible. And then the room fell silent. And the very young conductor, Albert thought, lifted his baton and off they went. Everyone was playing beautifully, he thought the music soaring and filling the air, the great stage hall perfect for acoustics. In truth, Albert thought he hardly needed to look at his music, the piece so old and familiar to him. Bertrand's piano playing, sublime, he felt. The young conductor's face, now lost in a sort of beautific trance. And then the pain started, slowly at first, his left arm and then his chest. Ah, oh, he thought. It had happened a few times over the last few months. It was his old shoulder strain, he thought. What a ridiculous thing. He'd just been trying to pick up a dropped quality street in the games room. On he played, now leaning forward, sweat on his lip. The room now oddly warmer. But on he played, the music wrapping around him so beautifully. And then the sharp pain came again, his left arm. This, this wasn't a strain. Oh! His chest getting tighter. Blast those pickles, so damn tasty. Oh, perhaps it was the Victoria sponge. When, without warning, everything went dark. His eyes opened slowly, and he came to. The air around him, now cool, sweet, and almost fresh to taste. He reached his hand. 
It was on a soft surface of some kind, fluffy almost. And he could hear music, heart music, everything around him now gleaming with a soft white light coming from everywhere. And he felt absolutely at peace. No pain, no aches. And he knew where he was. Finally, he'd be reunited with his beloved Sydney. And he turned his head as all around him a mass of flowers, masses of them like a huge garden. Their scent, sweet and pleasing, filled everywhere he could see. He turned his head to see a man sitting beside him. And he had the most wonderful smile, a mass of white hair and a silver beard, his eyes the bluest Albert had ever seen. And he reached out and he gently squeezed Albert's arm. There's nothing to worry about anymore. It's all over now. You're safe, you're with me, and everything's fine. Albert nodded. The man's voice, so low and gentle, soft like a lullaby. You're in a better place now. You understand that. And Albert did understand. It had finally happened, and he'd slipped the surly bonds of life at last. And he felt happy, not sad, not really. It was his time, it came to everyone. And the music tinkled around him. What beautiful playing, he thought. Just like mine. And then he smiled. Oh, it's heaven, isn't it? How silly. It probably is me playing. Of course it was. And he giggled. He began to sit up, when the man gently moved forward and pressed him back down. My dear fellow, you can rest, here of all places. And I do have to say, Mr Brockley, it's an absolute honour to meet you. May may I call you Albert? You are one of my favourite players. Albert felt himself swelling with pride. God knew his playing. This was wonderful. And the man softly continued. Especially your fourth movement solo in the 1982 concert at Carnegie Hall. Just sublime. Albert was now overwhelmed and the man smiled again. A smile so sunny, Albert felt he might cry. And the man slowly nodded his head. I'm Professor Stephen Collins, the cardiologist. It really is an honour to meet you, Mr Brockley. You're a particular favourite of my late mother's. And he turned, Albert now confused, as another man stood behind him wearing some kind of green smock. The man held his hand up and smiled and waved at Albert. Now... This is Dr Nish Rogathan. He's the anaesthetist. Now, Albert, you've had a bit of a scare, but we've repaired the valve, the operation's gone absolutely perfectly, and we're all very pleased. Now, the anaesthetic's still probably making you feel a bit unusual, but don't worry, we're going to have you back on your feet and playing before you know it. The man smiled. We thought playing the old recording of yourself might be a nice way to wake you up, yes? And Albert sighed heavily and sank back into his pillows. Fuck me, he thought. Fuck. Well, hopefully you're still smiling. And as you know, I like to get you, the listeners, trying to, I don't know, just try right yourself. And today it's a single paragraph exercise. And I tell you what I want you to do. This is kind of weird. It's not psychiatric or anything like that. Just write right now exactly how you're feeling. 
okay exactly how you're feeling because sometimes it's a bit like a personal diary we can look back sometimes and go that day i felt like this and it could be good bad indifferent meh whatever but sometimes setting our feelings down and i do this myself as a writer not only in the stories but in my own journal really is a very liberating thing to do i mean go on give it a go anyway enough of that it's the final story and this one's a love story from the love story collection and i absolutely well i love it and the story is called the card well I, I, i'm not sure how to start this story but but i'll get a go you see i was never what you'd call a confident child i was shy in fact small too for me age Bridwell were a typical town, a mining town in fact, back in the time when such places thrived and had communities. I was ten year old and everyone I knew seemed to work in the coal pits. Me dad had too, until the accident and then after that he were confined to his room pretty much. Me mum looking after him and me helping where I could. I suppose you could say that's why I was so quiet. I had to be good for me dad, ma'am told me, not to make a noise when I was in the house and that. Oh, they, they were good parents, don't get me wrong, kind and attentive. But dad just weren't well. And that coloured my young life right then. Although I knew he'd have hated the thought of it. But it just did. I went to St Margaret's, the small school everyone went to in the area, mixed boys and girls. A large Victorian red brick echoing place, linoleum corridors regularly scrubbed and the smell of disinfectant the seeming permanent thing. And at that time of year, in class 2B, we had summit I absolutely dreaded. The card day. To be precise, the secret Valentine's card day. It was a tradition seemingly going back oh, ages at the school. And it entered my young life when I was just eight years old. We were always in Miss Anstey's class, Arts and Crafts. And we had to make some Valentine's Day cards and post them in this red cardboard post box she'd made. And importantly, we had to disguise our handwriting and set down a little message. So no one knew who it were from. In a way, I suppose, you could say it was quite sweet. Not not for all of us, you see. You sent them without seeing who you were. And not every child were that popular, whilst others were. And me being in the not-so-popular bracket, I'm saddened to confess. So, there we all sat, quiet and busy, with paper card and glue and scissors, while Miss Anstey made two boys the postman for the day. We make the cards all morning, then we'd have our mid-morning milk break and playground time. Then we'd finish the cards and pour them in the box just before we went to the dinner hall for lunch. Then, once lunch were over, we'd troop back into our classroom. And then, once we were settled, Miss Anstey would talk to us about the significance of St Valentine. And then the cards would get delivered to us all by the two postmen. Now, on this particular year, 
The Portsmen were Stephen Jenkins and Jack Bennett, both popular boys. And it were them who got to go to the front and open the red post box in front of everyone. And then with Miss Anstey supervising, they sorted out all the cards. Once that were done, the cards were put into these special canvas bags the boys wore, around them, you know, like real postmen. And then off they went, delivering them to the old class. So there we were, satin rolls at our wooden desks, me with my aching stomach, knowing what were to come. There were three more like me in our class, Jenny Johnson, Stanley Trent and Billy Martin. Not popular, all for different reasons. Jenny's family were very poor, and her clothes looked threadbare. Stanley's dad were in prison for stealing. And Billy Martin, well, he went right in the head, they said. <laughs> and then there were me, small, scrawny and quiet. Nothing to write home about. But it were agony. The whole room were alive with excitement. The cards are now being delivered to everyone by Stephen and Jack, proudly wearing sashes and black hats and carrying their special canvas post bags. And they'd stop at each desk and say in a loud voice, Five for you today, sir, or six for you, miss. And we all had to clap. And every year, I got the one card. The same as Jenny, Stanley and Billy. And everyone knew they were from Miss Anstey. And we knew it too. All the week before I dreaded it. Some nights just tossing and turning. But my big problem, however, being Katie Treadstone. The prettiest girl in the class. I thought she were wonderful. Jet black long hair and green eyes. And everyone wanted to be her friend. She lived up in the nice houses by the big church and her dad with the town clerk. Very important man, my mum said. And I knew someone like Katie would never send me a card. I just knew it. But I knew I wanted to send her a Valentine card. But more than anything, what I really, really wanted to get a card from her. A part dream I knew, but somehow I thought if I prayed for it hard enough, it might happen. I prayed for me dad to get better and it hadn't worked. But when I told me mum, she just hugged me and said, just keep praying, son. You're a very good lad and maybe God will hear you. And she'd kiss me six times, counting each one out and saying she loved me. That was my favourite time when she did that. Her all warm and soft, stroking me hair. My man. Anyway, back at school and every mid-morning playtime, we'd all go into the school playground and separate into little groups, you know. The boys playing football and army soldiers and the girls would skip and play hopscotch and some pretended to be bridesmaids. Sometimes, however, there were a game of quick catch. It were a school game 
where a beanbag got thrown by the duty teacher in the playground and everyone joined in. And the idea were you had to keep the bag moving as fast as possible. And you had to throw it high into the air each time and that made it really hard to catch. But if you dropped the beanbag and it touched the ground, you were out of the game. And the whole thing were taken quite serious considering. So, so, so any road. Just the week before the great card handout, Mr. Summerby, the maths teacher, he'd blown his whistle and he'd started a game, a quick catch. And we'd formed a big circle just like usual. And to my utter delight and amazement, I'd found myself next to Katie Treadstone. And up the bag flew and down it came. And my classmates all shouting me excitement. And Mr. Summerby clapping his hands and saying things like, Well done, Norman Blakely. And champion catch, Dora Glenthorpe. I, 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 I couldn't believe me look. It were a bright sunny day. There I were, right next to Katie Treadstone. Her looking at me and laughing and smiling like I were one of her friends. And then the bag, he got thrown to her and she pretty much dropped it. But without thinking, I threw myself to the ground and it fell on my chest. And all the other children were shouting, foul play. But Mr. Summerby, he called out, no, it didn't touch the ground. So play on, Miss Treadstone, play on. Well done, David Henley, good lad, brave lad. And Katie quickly picked it up and flung it towards Martin Stanwell and he caught it. And up it flew once more. Well, I scrambled back to my feet, my poor little back aching and bruised. But then, Katie gave me such a smile, I nearly stopped breathing. It weren't a quick smile, oh no, not, not just a brief lifting of the hips, oh no. It were a full, bright smile, her eyes all shining. And she moved closer to me and then she whispered, Thank you for saving me. You're my hero. And I thought my heart would leap out my chest. I thought about her for days after that. Her words ringing in my head. My hero. And then the week passed by and then with the 14th. And all that morning on the way to school, I was dreading it. The annual Valentine card handout. Katie were an angel. Come straight down from heaven. There, there weren't no other explanation. And although I knew it were hopeless, I imagined how wonderful it would have been to get a card from her. But deep in my young heart, I knew it would never happen. Boys like me never got cards from girls like Katie. Boys like Alan Brealy and Anthony Clayton, well, them were the ones that did. Plus, they always got more cards than anyone. They were tall. Both were blonde and they won cups for running. Anthony had his own bicycle, a blue one, we own and a light. But as for me, I was small, insignificant, muddy brown hair and slight. And nothing, really. And so now we're all back in the classroom. We all sat down 
and now begin the business of the Red Pulse Box opening. Miss Anstey read out a poem by Shakespeare, which I didn't understand. And then it began. The agony, the torture. Stephen and Jack marched up and down, and the atmosphere was happy and full of excitement. There were 25 children in my class. Each of us had made three cards, which meant anyone could get as many or as few as had been sent. And up and down the postman went, calling out names, we were so clapping. And me noting the clapping got slightly muted with each, one for you, sir. And then they'd bow grandly and move on and say, seven for you, miss. I knew the type of clapping I'd received, but still somewhere deep in my young heart, hope briefly blossomed like a mad flower in winter. And then Stephen stood in front of me, his cardboard hat with the word Borsman in gold letters at a jaunty angle. One for you, sir. And he bowed, and I heard the slight clapping. I felt crushed. I hardly heard the other cards being delivered, the blood roaring in my ears. I felt humiliated. I prayed to God, but he hadn't listened again. And the hometown bell finally rang and put me out of my misery. As I walked home that day, I just felt broken, useless. To be honest, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. But then I turned the corner by the small park and standing there were Katie Treadstone, all by herself. I could, I could feel my face burning red. That was an idiot. She was probably waiting for her friends. But then she saw me and she waved. I didn't know what to do, so I kept on walking until she skipped over and she just stood right there in front of me. And then she gave me a smile. Well, it almost burnt right through me. She leant forwards and she kissed me on my cheek. Special delivery, sir, she whispered. I, I, I couldn't move. And then she took my hand and she pushed some into it, you know, before chirping, bye David. And then she was skipping off along down the way by the swings. Well, I, I could hardly breathe. My legs were trembling that much and my chest, well, it felt it just might go bang at any moment. And I looked in my hand. What she'd put there. It were a card done in red, white and blue, the colours of the flag, made by her, in class. We always used the same stuff. It had a great big red heart on the front, and the words, Be My Valentine, in careful handwriting underneath it. Well, I looked about, but there were no one around, and I was still trying not to fall over such a state I were in. So, I opened the card, and there it were, the message. Roses are red, 
violets are blue. You are my hero and I love you. And underneath it was signed with love from care with six little kisses like the ones my mam gave me. Life weren't much fun for me back then. Not really. But on that day, in that moment, I felt such love and joy as I'd never known. And I knew it right then, as sure as I'm talking to you now, that no matter what happened from then on out, there were one thing I knew, and that were that just for a moment, Katie Treadstone loved me. She loved me, me, her hero. I were a valentine. And no one or nothing could ever take that away from me. And that were everything I needed. Everything. I hope you found that as sweet as I did. But anyway, it's time for me to say goodbye because it's time for the end of the podcast. As normal, I end with my ramble on. Please follow us on social media. The Story Hive is a growing, growing site. And we really want to get bigger and bigger as much as we can. So please tell people about us. Follow us on social media. And as I say, go to thestoryhive.co.uk so you can actually hear our whole selection. But as you know, it's time for me to wrap up with my normal wrap up, and that is the Hope the World. And today, I hope the world gives you a really big win. Bye now. Mm -hmm.